HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Lorenzo Reginieri. And our special guest, Matt Lorenz. Hey, Matt, how are Hello. you? Matt is a returning guest here on the network, and we just wanted to encourage all callers, our, our listeners, to call in live and ask any questions they have for Matt, the trees not trash expert, um, at 718-497-2128. And of course, as always, this episode can be art- listened to on our archive at www.heritageradionetwork.com. And thanks to Jack today for producing and engineering this show. So Matt, you were on our program a few weeks back, and you've since been to Europe where you attended a premiere of a movie that I understand you starred in. Mm-hmm. That's right. But in addition to the, fa- the fame, the trip for the, for the fame and celebrity, you also did a little in-the-field research on some of the green structures which we touched upon in our previous broadcast with you. That's right. And you had momentarily spoken about an architect, Jan Christensen, Mm -hmm. who is the professor of integrated design at the University of Delft in the Netherlands. That's correct. Who is thought, or who is the brains behind what is thought to be the greenest building in the world? Uh, It's billed as the greenest building in the Netherlands, but it remains to be seen whether it's the world. But since Netherlands is pretty advanced and that sort of thing, who knows? Okay, so what did you learn from from Jan recently? How is the building coming, and what are some of the most interesting features uh, that you foresee having widespread applications from this building into other structures? Okay, the, the building, essentially, the greenest building, is in the process of being constructed now. Its launch date, so to speak, is in, uh, I believe it's spring of 2012. And it's essentially for a horticultural summit, um, an international summit uh, of any sort of technologies related to uh, plants, um, whether for food or whether for decoration, landscaping, and so forth. Um, The building essentially is going to be in Venlo, uh, which is in the southeast of Holland. Um, It's a city 
that kind of is going to, it's essentially hoping to become part of this new wave of really sustainable, like green cities. Um, and of course, Netherlands being a particularly progressive and uh, environmentally conscious country, um, they really, uh, they're hoping that this is, that this, uh, this big flagship, this greenest building is going to essentially be kind of a call to arms for, 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 for people that are interested in making environmentally sustainable buildings, um, real to make them not just pie in the sky stuff, but make it so that a building literally can be built, built from scratch with uh, new techniques, integrated design techniques that involve not needing any exterior heat or cooling or water or electricity, having it, having its essentially it's, uh, it, having its environmental footprint be, be virtually, uh, this exactly the same size as it is. Huh. Interesting. So this integrated design model sounds mm-hmm. fascinating. We touched upon <clears throat> it briefly. We had a brief meeting before this before the interview. What is integrated design and what's it gonna take for it to be implemented in a widespread fashion? Integrated design is um another word for it is whole building or a whole building technique. It's literally a kind of a cross-disciplinary, collaborative, organic way of making a project happen, specifically building projects that involve traditionally any number of uh, components such as architects. There's uh, shareholders that that own the company that's building it. There's future tenants. There's uh, contractors. There's all specific uh, technical, skilled people that are going to be building this building. Um, The way that it's kind of been done uh, traditionally is that one stage of the process is handed off to the next um, in a process that doesn't really take into consideration that if there are mistakes uh, in final versions of the blueprint, they're going to screw something up. And they're much more difficult to fix uh, down the line as if they're taken into consideration early on in the process so that there's an organic process that's taking place with all members involved um, so that they can work out things such as which building materials are we going to use? Are we going to try to make it as cheap as we can? Because if you just make it as cheap as you can, there's going to be kind of structural issues that arise next to that. Um, are you going to do it as as big as you can? Well, if you're doing it as big as you can, there's a quality of life issue. Um, so that the, basically integrated design just takes all of these different collaborative approaches and merges them into one kind of organic unit or process. So this conversation is kind of an extension of something we touched upon last time you were on the show about a month ago in September, where we were talking about runoff of water from um, in urban areas and what that has an effect on in terms of our landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, so can we talk a little bit more about that? Sure. And how this plan will then fix some of these issues that we discussed? Sure. Uh, last program, we talked briefly about the idea of uh, different types of water being categorized and treated not as just wastewater, but in fact, uh, two different types of water. Um, if you, you know, anytime you flush the toilet down or you wash dishes or, uh, you know, anything that happens that goes into a waste line in a standard house, essentially it goes into a sewer, uh, and then it gets, um, somehow transported just by gravity, however many miles away. Uh, and then it's treated and then uh, it's either reintroduced into a lake or a stream or in some cases reconstituted for drinking purposes. Um, the difference between that standard model and the more recent model that's kind of emerged uh, specifically in the Netherlands, but also other kind of developing or more developed countries, mm-hmm. is that instead of mixing all of the wastewater together, you make a very um, 
a clean distinction between black water, which is feces, urine, those things that have a high toxicity count, and other types of water. For example, you just took a shower, uh, washing dishes, things like that, flushing, you know, like just um, using the sink. Mm -hmm. That water um, can be used for irrigation purposes. It can be used for purposes of pumping through radiators to, to either to heat or to cool a place. So, what they attempt to do is to make very clean distinctions between those waters and treat them differently, specifically because instead of sending it to a centralized area to be processed, it's going to be processed locally at the site of the development. So, for example, you've got a row of 15 or 20 apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. Inside the infrastructure of those buildings is made a place to, to keep the, um, the, the waste uh, to off-gas the waste to allow it to ferment and essentially combine uh, organically and chemically just with just natural. Sometimes there's additives put into it, but sometimes it's just generating methane off-gassing that can be used to for micro turbines to heat. Um, it also can be used as fertilizer. It can be broken down further and added to uh, to um, a water table nearby that, that can be um, sent to the plant so it can be used for uh, fertilization. Um, and then also the gray water can in turn immediately be sent to be used for, uh, for agricultural purposes, or it can also be reused for, you know, like washing a car or something like that, provided that it doesn't have too high of a content of toxic materials. Hmm. So it's like, <clears throat> it's repurposing waste essentially, mm-hmm. or it's, That's right. re- it's repurposing water in the same way that that this studio repurposes wood. That's right. And it's doing it on a local level so that there's no infrastructure needing to take that waste dozens of miles away and process it and then maybe bring it back to water later. It's all doing it locally. Which is what New York City does, for example. I think most cities... uh, So it's like building mini cities. That's correct. It's It's building the infrastructure for all components of the life inside of itself as opposed to relying on external means so there would be many reservoirs within these 10 20 apartment mm-hmm. complexes that save these different waters that they would be using for these different reasons that's correct right there mm-hmm. yeah for example you know the use of uh, there's a, a bunch of really remarkable plants that have the properties of being able to essentially clean water mm-hmm. um I, as far as I know, they don't have any plants that are able to clean sewage water, um, really the black water. But there right. are, I mean, if there was, that would be, it'd be great because you can just put those in the sewers, you'd be all set. Definitely. But I think what they have is they have what's called engineered wetlands, which is essentially a, an unnatural or a man-made marsh, um, which has reeds and um, certain types of um, aquatic plants that just by virtue of their root structure and how they, they go about their little ecological niche, they're able to... Uh, essentially filter out the say, water like yeah. their own filtering system. exactly so essentially you're filtering out the things that are that are less um, desirable in the water table and those are staying in the plant themselves there is some harvesting that needs to be done evidently where you need to be cutting these periodically um, not not for eating I don't think these to would be allow plant. more filtering to occur to allow exactly to, because it is an organic it's essentially a living filter it's, the biomass itself is a filter and that stuff will build up and I don't think it, it, it once it builds up past a certain level it probably becomes really bad for the plant you have a fish tank you have to take out the filter and put in a new one right exactly exactly Exactly. and speaking of fish it's funny you mentioned that there's another uh, technique uh that's uh, quite fascinating um we've all heard of um of course you know aquaculture which is the growing of fish in urban environments or growing them instead of fishing out of the streams and lakes and seas which are already really depleted you're yeah essentially like a fishery and then of course we we know about the idea of like um things that are hydroponics which are growing of plants in kind of a just water and nutrient 
nutrient based instead of a growing medium like soil you're mm-hmm. essentially doing it just in a water Definitely. there's a remarkable uh, technique called it's actually called aquaponics which is a merging mm-hmm. of aquacultures and hydroponics where plants are being grown with their roots allowed to dangle in the water um, and then there's fish that are being raised in this water. So the fish are generating their own wastes, which mm-hmm. is, a, is a form of fertilizer. The fertilizer is getting filtered through the roots, and the roots are actually producing edible plants. So I love this idea of you've got uh, an interesting way to merge two existent technologies and arrive at a third, which provides you both with fish that can be eaten as well as vegetables. It's kind of an interesting little mix. Definitely, I would say so. So the, these kind of pictures that you're painting are generally the preserve of magazine articles in like Wired where you have these blueprints where you see like these like Jetson style models with fish and plants and there's a building and I mean what is it going to take It's like a Venn diagram to bring them all together. What's it going to take for these for us not to be talking about the greenest building but for us to be talking about the least green building and how mm-hmm. to get rid of it. I mean how long how far away are we from from that? And do you think that once globally it's accepted that these technologies are not necessarily the preserve of techies, but are actually necessary in order to sustain human life mm-hmm. on this planet, when do you think the materials and the building of these projects will become either A, government subsidized, or B, as affordable or more affordable than building a normal building is today? Well, I think the, the main thrust of that is, is always going to come down to an issue of cost. It's always going to be where is the cost born, at what point or at what stage in the development, and who's going to bear that cost. Um, the reason it starts to make good sense past the kind of pie-in-the-sky futuristic articles where you see a nice vent rendering of people enjoying this wonderfully futuristic <laughs> right. thing, once you get past that, that's essentially the, the R&D phase. Like, here's what, we, here's what we're envisioning as going to be a possible could model. Work. Right, could work. Once you start testing it out, you start realizing that using this kind of integrated design approach where all the components are taken in during the design phase and during the actual execution and building phase, you start realizing that there's a lot of savings to be made, let's say, in the use of solar panels. Now you've got a building, you want to put solar panels on it. It's going to be fairly expensive to get the solar panels. You have to put them with some sort of rigging on top of the existent roof, blah, blah, blah. But you can imagine at some point in the future, there will be an integrated solar panel that just is a roofing tile. Uh-huh. And that's just what you have to use. That's just, that's, that's just as expensive as a normal one. And uh, it immediately uh, gives you at least, at the very least, hot water so that you don't have to be you know, boiling up something in a reservoir. It gives you hot water and then possibly even um, some sort of additional uh, electrical component. I think the thing that, the thing that ultimately is going to have to happen for people to realize the need for this sort of um, research and development is that it really is an overall savings if you look at the big picture. It's an investment. It's an investment. You might be spending tens of, or you know, in some cases for a big building, hundreds of thousands of dollars more to integrate these new technologies. But your overall heating costs, your overall uh, cooling costs, perhaps your costs related to uh, how are we piping in new water? All how are utilities. We, all of these utilities are essentially borne out in the overall cost. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that it's always going to be about how much do I have to spend to build this thing or how much do I have to spend to, to make this compliant with like the next level of regulations. But it always starts very small, slow steps, um, little examples that eventually become integrated into the, the big picture. Sure. I mean, you, decades ago, the concept of a building built on wheels to sustain 
the impact of an earthquake would have sounded just as futuristic mm-hmm. as these these ideas and now virtually every building every new building in Los sure. Angeles is built that way. Sure. But my question is, do you think the problem is not so much the amount of energy we use but <clears throat> our inability to harness as much energy as we can? I mean, it, there's no scarcity of energy. Mm-hmm. Is That's there? Right. I mean, the universe is providing yeah. as much energy as we need to sustain ourselves forever. That's right. So we we focus so much on building green buildings and on using less energy. Mm-hmm. But do you think? What do you think are some of the developments that could be going on to harness more of the energy at our disposal? Well, there's a lot of really remarkable um, prototypes that are being developed in the North Atlantic, um, specifically by. I believe there's um, a Swedish firm that's uh, essentially making offshore barges where they will harvest uh, the air power. So it's essentially huge turbines that are kind of offshore. They're not taking up uh, any space on the land. Um, out at sea, there's higher wind volumes because it's just flat. There's no uh, you know topography to interrupt with that. So they're starting to develop certain things. I think that's true. There's energy is all around us, whether it's there's invisible types of energy, there's energy that's that's obvious, but how do we, like t- harvesting the tides, how do we do that? How do we harvest the wind? It's kind of like Only, this morning when they like blasted off into the moon to decide yeah. what we can use from beneath yeah. the moon's it's surface. launch a two-ton bullet at the moon, exactly. So, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of... Um, I think there's a lot of different <laughs> emerging technologies that, um, you know, once it initially becomes proven to be an effective method or a remedy or, or a technological thing, then uh, multiple companies will start to pull up and they step up to get in on that. And then once they do that, it drives the market cost down. The unit cost is becomes more affordable. And at some point, it makes such good sense that you pretty much have to have it. I mean, if you think about um, buildings, you know, there's certain codes that become part of the regulatory appliance that, that you have to have that particular technique. Um, and it probably would have been just nuts to imagine that, you know, 20 years ago you needed to have insulation on the, you know, lead certification. yeah, lead certification that, you know, that most people don't know what that is. But but once people start learning what it is, um, what is you start, the learning curve is quick. That's true. And and also it's again, as, as long as those costs can be can be made to be visible by the people that are the investors, that in fact, these things that appear to be taking a lot more money initially are in fact working are, are, are basically making it so you're making a long-term savings that's the sort of that's a sort of shift that needs to happen in people's minds and there's also a cultural and social there's a cultural and social component too i mean for for one to build something that is not lead certified now because that 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 building would become shunned publicly like for example mm-hmm. there's a new venue open that's called the Brooklyn Bowl in, in in Williamsburg, mm-hmm. it's all lead certified. Mm-hmm. Except, so to build a venue like that that is not environmentally conscious, I don't think would register well with with mm-hmm. the public. Sure, yeah, that's that's right. I mean, and, and you, you mentioned the idea of, of the, the public having a certain understanding of the issues that are that are affecting their daily lives, whether they're political voices or where they decide to shop for their food or they decide to grow their own food. These are all things that are kind of borne out by the collective conscious. The thing that's really fascinating to me about the Netherlands um, is that the average Dutch person lives only a few meters from sea level. Mm-hmm. Their entire country, the, the Netherlands, the, the low country, such as it is, mm-hmm. is called the low country because there's virtually no topographical blip on that entire huge region with millions of people. I think it was in the 50, no, no, in the, uh, I believe in the 70s, there was a horrible breaching of a dam that resulted in tons of people getting drowned. Um, it's all the entire country's water tables are all very, very carefully monitored by a system of sluices and 
and dams and things so that the idea of global warming um, over the there, there is no controversy such that you might still somehow expect to find in the American sphere. We're like, well, it's not really. It's just a theory. We don't really know if this is a, a, a climate change is being caused by a glacier. It's like, no, it's on. And not only is it on, it's raising water levels. Yeah, the Manhattan. If you raise, if you raise water levels much more than they're already risen in the North Atlantic, you Never suddenly get tons deep. of people drowning. So the average <laughs> Dutch person is exceedingly aware of the environmental impact of man-made things and how those things can be minimized and in some cases reversed. And I think that's the next wave is to try to figure out what we can do to manage the damage that we've already, we've already caused. So that's why the Netherlands is at the vanguard of the eco-living movement. But there's also other, there's other factors that allow for, for the Netherlands to, to, do, to, to take on these projects. There's a quality sure. of living factor. There's oh, absolutely. A political, absolutely. There's, a, there's a forward-thinking political structure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it all comes down to the almighty dollar. I mean, That's true. Or the euro, it, as it is. Right. <laughs> why is it that you think the Netherlands has, such, has, has the means to, to, to implement these? Well, there, you know, there's a lot of countries, if you just look at the globe, there's tons of countries that are living at a similarly kind of low region to the rising water levels. The difference is, I think, in this case, the Dutch happen to have an extremely affluent, um, I think their per capita income is one of the highest in the world. The average Dutch person, uh, the, the economy generated in the Netherlands is is such that they can actually afford to experiment with these. So it's not just that they are directly affected, um, but they also feel the impulse to do perhaps more than other countries because they actually have the economic infrastructure. They have the technological sophistication. They have the governmentally mandated um, uh, you know, basically, you know, they, they need they need to get things done, and they need to they really need to to start cracking with it because again, they're just you know they're 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 not too far away from just getting flooded. Yeah, so. it's right it's right yeah. at their yeah. door. It's mm-hmm. knocking. That's true. Do you think that there'll be um, the financial burden will be too much to bear for certain economies to to continue with a project like this or to even start one? Well, certainly, you're not gonna see this sort of building project happen anywhere in the world. This is a very specific, there's only a few places it could even start Mm -hmm. where the amount of, you know, millions, if not billions of euros required are not just going to be, I mean, if they're going to spend that sort of money, they're going to do it on a dam or a big, you know, a set of like, you know, harvest places. They're going to do it on something that has a more immediate applicability to their society. Um, But that's the beautiful thing about a place like the Netherlands. They have enough uh, in reserve that they can be affording these experimental and and pioneering methods and technologies. And then if they end up working out reasonably well, they can be absorbed by other countries that have the technological sophistication. But that's true. I mean, it, it it is a lot of money. I mean, you know, it's the same issue of, you know, do, should we should we support NASA as we have? You know, like, you know, NASA's in a lot of, for, for most of the average American, I don't imagine NASA means particularly much. Um, you know, but, but there are, there, you know, again, if you withhold all funding from NASA, we don't go anywhere with our research that eventually the benefits of which can trickle down and affect the average person. So... Um, I think it's the same thing like, yeah, okay, it definitely has the appearance of being science fiction, but it's only a matter of time before science fiction becomes science fact because you're able to integrate these new wacky ideas and suddenly it just becomes a standard technology that everybody can, can reap the benefits of. Wow. And I mean, if you take into consideration the amount of money that the Netherlands saves by not having huge war spending or huge, you know, I mean, the amount of money that, that the United Sp- States spends on other things that it could be spending on, 
on ecological and yep. technological advancements is staggering. That's right. I mean, if you think about a week of how much it costs for us to support a troop presence in Iraq and Afghanistan, you could probably build the greenest building in every city in the United States several times over. I mean, it's remarkable how much money is being allocated towards that sort of thing, when in fact, um, there are other issues that I think the average person would think are more pressing if they really had a chance to, to get into the nitty gritty and be like, wow, like, where are we going with this? What are we going to be able to see as a result of 10 years of this or 20 years of this? And there really needs to be some sort of impetus on progress and, and technological sophistication so that it can actually you know, be used by, by, by everybody. Right, and we were you mentioned earlier something about these um, windows that could help, um, but not necessarily right away, something that could happen 10, 20, 30 years down the line, so it's hard for people to imagine making that investment ahead of time. But would you tell me a little bit more about sure. those windows? Yeah, there's uh, actually the same architect whose firm is essentially creating this greenest building project. He has, for a number of years now, been working on a breathing window concept that now is finally going into production. The breathing window. Oh, it's going into production, not just for this building prototype. I'm not sure whether they're going to use it in this building because it's designed for a smaller use, um, uh, houses and apartments and so forth. Whereas this building that we're talking about earlier was just as a massive, you know, there's like a 650 car parking down below and so forth. This huge. Um, Whether or not the breathing window technologies can be used in this, I'm not sure. I haven't heard about it being used. But essentially the breathing windows are, um, it's a a patented technology that uh, essentially allows air to flow in or out of... um, a room um, and essentially an, an equalized climate control sort of thing. So to make some some semblance out of that gibberish, it's essentially a way that if it gets too stuffy in a room and it's hot inside, uh, but it's cold outside, instead of just opening the window and allowing the hot air to go out, you're essentially losing some of your energy. So you have to take the radiator, just to work a little bit harder. Um, essentially what happens is, is it has... Um, a system where a fan will blow air from outside to inside. So replacing the stuffy air inside with fresh air outside, but blowing it past a set of super thin wires um, that are retaining the overall heat. So for example, and that's the so-called window. That's the, well, the window itself looks like any other window. The pores of the window. Exactly. Well, the window itself is, it looks much like a normal window, but then on the bottom or top of it, there's going to be a smallish, maybe about a six inch deep, uh, maybe about a six inch tall box. And that box essentially will be the heat transfer system where the, where the fine wires are in. So it's something that will live next to all windows, but it allows the air to flow into the window while, for example, it's hot inside, it's cold outside. You need there to be some fresh air. Um, what happens is, is as the cold air is coming in, it's, it's being blown past the hot wires and being reheated up. And as the, as the stale air is being blown out, it's, being, it's, it's basically heating up those wires on its way out. So your overall loss of heat inside or that's going outside is much less. Um, and that's, that's my understanding so of it. you're using the a little hot more... air to heat the wires that are going to warm the cool air. Exactly, exactly. So that, some, so that, right. so that it reaches a happy medium right. inside And the then house. flip that around uh, for when it's really hot in the summertime and it's cooler air, you know, then you, it essentially does the same thing. It just reverses the flow. So, and what's interesting about this is that technology we talked about, well, okay, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be, it's going to be, you know, not everybody's going to be able to go down to the Home Depot and spend as much as just a normal window mm-hmm. to get. But the thing that's amazing about it is if you look at the architectural designs of most buildings that have like central HVAC units, like uh, heating, like, you know, basically ventilation systems, um, 
up to 15% of the interior surface of that building is going to be uh, ducts and conduit and soffits and, and, and little vents and things moving throughout the entire building. It's a waste it. of space. It's a waste of space. So if you have each room regulated locally mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to centrally, and again, it's this emphasis of moving things away from a centralized to a more local. We talked about it with the water. Instead of sending it to the sewage plant, you do it right underneath the house. Instead of sending your air to the top of the building where there's a car-sized, huge, energy-guzzling thing up there, it's all done locally. And of course, living in New York, we all know the experience where, you know, it's too hot inside. It's in the winter. You open your window because you have no ability to adjust. You can't turn down your radiator. So you let all that hard-earned air just blow out, um, which is certainly far from the most efficient system. Well, there's definitely a website where you can go to learn more about this project and this World Horticultural Expo. Um, I'm going to spell it out for you listeners. It's www.floriade dot nl slash en dash gb dot aspx and that'll be on our website for all Mm -hmm. of you so you can just easily copy and paste that into your browser but there's lots of uh, fun information there it's a nice interactive website you can really get a good feel for what's going to be going on in the netherlands in the next uh what is it four years only now yeah it'll be three years right and if you were confused in the last show about my uh somewhat cryptic uh descriptions (laughs) you'll be able to see some beautiful renderings of the actual building itself which is a fairly remarkable looking structure yeah and for all of you listeners out there we encourage you to email matt at TheExperiment.org. TheExperiment.org. Mm-hmm. And then Heather or Lorenzo at HeritageRadioNetwork.com. And, of course, we'd love to thank our sponsor today, Hearst Ranch. Um, fine. I have one more question for Matt, though, before we wrap <laughs> up. I have one more bombshell question here. Bust it. How does the future of the human race depend on us going green, or is this just something we're doing to make ourselves feel better about ourselves? Uh, I think a little bit of both, um, but I'm hoping more of the former than the latter. Um, I think we really do need to figure ways to minimize our already fairly overburdened presence on the planet. And when we talked about the idea of integrated design as a concept to build buildings, I think integrated design is more of a philosophical underpinning that really needs to start to, to manifest itself in virtually everything that we do, whether it's how we feed ourselves, how we clothe ourselves, what sort of things we put in our cars, what sort of things we put in our bodies. And I think if you really take the big picture into consideration, there's ways that we can live more smartly, more efficiently, um, that will, in fact, save us money. If we're only looking at the bottom line, which is what we're kind of trained from the very beginning of, in this country culturally to do, even if you are only looking at the bottom line, there's still ways to take that bottom line into configuration. And I love the idea of uh, Buckminster Fuller. We should pour a little out for Bucky, but he... Uh, <laughs> He uh, had the remarkable concept uh, that he pioneered, which was the idea of the world game, of the game. It's, okay, we're trying to compete. We're trying to do as best as we can. We're trying to win. But how do we make it so that the entire world wins and the more people can benefit from it as opposed to the fewer? Um, and, that, and, that's, and that's certainly something that always is kind of in the back of, of, of our minds and, and certainly in the minds of people that are developing really progressive uh, architectural styles. And I mean, it's not, it's not uncommon in the natural world to see the survival of one species occurring at the expense of another. Sure. How come we don't pass ethical judgment 
on that when we see it occur in the natural world, but we think of ourselves as human beings as doing a good or bad job at survival when we impact the well-being of other species. Right. That's a good question. I think it's, you know, it's, it, we're kind of dawning on a, on a way of thinking that takes these sort of questions into consideration. And I think that specifically uh, the idea of the world game being kind of applicable to every different endeavor that we have um, we really, we really are at a place where we can not only recognize our footprint, but we can also take steps to minimize it. And as opposed to kind of being uh, a cancer on the earth, which is uh, in its tumor state, just expanding, expanding without any you know, consideration of anything else, we're starting to figure out ways that we can manage that. There are some that say it's too late, that we've already gotten too big for our britches, that we've already affected. The, the, but, but I think that there are new technologies that are e- existing in our minds mm-hmm. as mental tools, as well as physical things that we can manifest. And I think those are going to combine. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to overcome a lot of our more deeply rooted problems. But at the same time, it's hard to imagine fixing the problems using the same mindset as that we got ourselves into the problem. Mm-hmm. So well, there are some is- shifts. This is exactly why we need to continue to share this wealth of a, you know, information and knowledge that you have with our listeners here on the network and to continue bringing you back with all these fine updates because the network loves you. You've been a great guest. Um, we're happy to have you back anytime. We should have you on for a more metaphysical, less less <laughs> oh, I don't, less nitty-gritty talk. Yeah, your your uh, your listenership <laughs> might drop off to zero if we go that way, but <laughs> but sure, anytime. <laughs> and then we definitely want to hear more about this movie that you're starring in. So we'll we'll have you back again and uh, we thank you and we thank our listeners and we thank uh, the Hearst Ranch for sponsoring today's show and as always www.heritageradionetwork.com to listen to this again on our archives and feel free to subscribe to our Heritage Farm Report podcast so you can listen to it on the go and Google search Trees Not Trash Matt's Project (laughs) 